You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. When you think of true joy, what exactly is true joy? Like we all have a sense of what joy is. I hope we do. But what is true joy? And why does joy flee from us? In other words, have you ever noticed that when you experience joy, it has a tendency to decay? Sometimes it decays quite rapidly. Uh, what causes joy to be extinguished? What causes it to, uh, to decay? And what causes our lives to seem sometimes to ourselves like they're dull or perhaps even uh, insignificant? Just some questions to run in the background. Now, when I read, your t- read the text this morning, you might think to yourself, how in the world are we going to get there uh, from our text? Um, well, that is what is going to follow. Uh, you look at verse 13, chapter 49, verse 13. There we find the words, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Let's pray. We will need to pray to make sense of this. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we pray, Father, that you would be pleased to open your word to our hearts this morning. Father, your word has a powerful message for us always, and this particular text is no uh, exception. Father, we look to you to be our teacher and our guide. Father, we have no interest in hearing the opinions of men. Father, we desire to hear your counsel, your truth, your word. And I pray, Father, that as these, this text is, uh, is discussed and expounded, that, Lord, we will each hear your voice speaking to us. That, oh, Father, you would meet each one of us in our place, Father. And I pray, Father, that we will find joy and comfort and correction and strength in this text. We pray these things in the name of our Lord. Amen. And amen. Okay, where do we start with this? Let's start with Zebulun. That's easy enough, right? Zebulun. We've heard, we've heard the name Zebulun before. We'll recognize that Zebulun is one of uh, Jacob's sons, of course. And he is the youngest son that is born to Leah. Uh, you might not remember all these details uh, of who was born to who. There are 12 sons. It's hard to sort that out. Uh, But Leah has uh, six sons, doesn't she, to Jacob. And, uh, you know, it's not surprising that we began our discussion uh, with Reuben. Uh, Reuben is the oldest, right? Firstborn. Then came Simeon. Then came Levi. Then came Judah. And that's the order that we've been taking these sons in. Now, there are other sons that are born, before 
uh, Zebulun. And in fact, Issachar actually is older than Zebulun. And we might scratch our heads as to why Zebulun is being taken up first. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, one author is speculating that perhaps, uh, you know, uh, that uh, Zebulun and Issachar just happened to be around Jacob's bed in that order. And you'll recall that the context of this passage is Jacob is on his deathbed. This is the, we're in the last minutes of his life here, the last, uh, the last period of his life here. And if you look at verse 1, you'll see that Jacob has called his sons together. He says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you. In the first three sermons on this, on this particular passage, on chapter 49, we were entertaining the question, what shall happen to us? Of course, where am I getting that from? Well, Jacob is telling his sons what shall happen to them. And, of course, there's spiritual import to this. And we've been drawing that out of the text over the last three weeks. Uh, Jacob has gathered his sons together so he may look down through the corridors of time and tell them what will become of them and their descendants. Now, of course, as soon as we look at it that way, we can, we can immediately see that this is an exercise that no human being can entertain. There is not a human being alive that can look down the quarter of time and tell us with this kind of detail what is going to become of our descendants. And of course, that is certainly, in, uh, it's taken, it's, it's predicated in the language that Jacob is using. He commands them. It's an imperative. He's not asking them to come along. He's telling them, gather yourselves together, assemble together, come here that I may tell you. Now, as they gather around this bed, Jacob, as I've said in earlier studies, he's not simply giving them wishful thoughts. He's not just saying, listen, I hope this... It's not one of those things like, you know, where we give wishful thinking to one another. Jacob is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's, he, is, he is giving them insight into what God is literally going to do in the lives of their descendants. And of course, last week we looked at what really probably is the, definitely the high mark of this whole thing when we looked at Judah. You know, you think about how many centuries down the quarters of time Jacob looks. Jacob is blind at this point, but he can see so very well, can he? And he sees Christ. He sees the lion of the tribe of Judah, does he not? He sees the Savior. He sees the one who is promised in Genesis 3.15. He sees the one who is promised. And he will be a descendant of Judah. Now, he is given his... He has given his blessing to Reuben. He's given his blessing to Simeon and Levi. He's given his blessing to Judah. This morning, we come to Zebulun. Why Zebulun is first over Issachar, I don't think we know. Perhaps in glory, we'll find out. I think that, however I think, as we're gazing upon the beauty of Jesus, I'm not sure this is going to even come to our minds. I I don't think. Uh, But if it does, um, I, I think we could learn there easily enough. We're told that Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. That's verse 13. Okay, Uh, on the surface of this, what what do you think? Obviously, it's talking about the inheritance as they go into the promised land. And it looks to me like Zebulun's being promised some oceanfront property, doesn't it? Many of you like the beach. Oceanfront property sounds pretty good, right? 
except for there's a problem. If you have like a map in the back of your Bible, some of you do, uh, when you look back there, there's, if you have maps, there's probably a map that will concern the, the inheritance and the borders of the inheritance of the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you look there, you'll see each of the tribes in their place. And if you find the Sea of Galilee, and you look at the southern half of the Sea of Galilee, and you go west, you go to the left, you're going to see that Zebulun sits there kind of landlocked. Zebulun is not along the coast. It's not along the coast. In fact, Asher really is... I mean, it's almost like as we're reading this, we think to ourselves, wow, you seem to be, dis you seem to be describing Asher's territory instead of Zebulun's. Now, I'm pointing this to your attention because there is a certain skeptic out there that likes to find these kinds of things and I like to say, and, and, and the, average, the, average, the average Christian has probably never even considered this. I mean, I, just this afternoon, go, go, go talk to some of your Christian friends and say, hey, what do you think of uh, Genesis 49 verse 13? I, I'm not expecting you're going to get too many answers. It's an obscure passage. I, I'm, people are probably not going to think, well. And, and the skeptic will say, okay, you Christians say that that, that this is prophecy and that God is speaking and that there's no errors in the Bible. Yet here, Zebulun has promised uh, oceanfront property, and he doesn't get it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I see how Judah and everything comes out with Judah, but uh, it looks to me like a mistake was made uh, for Zebulun. And this has, led, uh, this has led liberal Protestantism down all kinds of nasty roads where they come to the conclusion, well, you can believe part of the Bible, but you can't believe all of the Bible. You can believe some of the Bible, you can't believe all of the Bible. Now, okay, if you can believe some of the Bible and you can't believe all the Bible, what parts can you believe? And what parts can't you believe? And interestingly enough, the parts that people have a tendency to believe when they ask that question are the parts they like. And the parts that they don't believe are parts they don't like. So the hermeneutic or the criteria upon which is believable and which is unbelievable is personal fancy. It's a hermeneutic of personal fancy. I'm going to believe the stuff I like. I'm not going to believe the stuff I don't like. That is ridiculous. And it's, it's a killer of our souls. And it's a killer of joy, if I might just add that. That's a joy killer. And churches who have gone down that route are dying. Their doors are closing every day. Um, the Bible is the Word of God. God is speaking. What do we say to the skeptic? And one of the reasons why I want to bring this to your attention is because in the, right now, kids are young and they're wearing these nice little hats with ears on them and they got little horns sticking out. And I think that's so cool. I almost like to have one for myself. I think it would be cool if I could have one. And, you know, I don't have one of those, but they're so neat. Um, but at any rate, I should keep those thoughts to myself probably. But... Um, it's already out of the bag. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to get her attention anyhow. I want them to know that they're part of this. Um, I've lost my train of thought completely. <laughs> the skeptics. Why, why do I... They're one of the reasons, but not just them. This youngster that's writing in this book, I'll tell you what, you're going to blink in and she's going to be going off to college. And I don't, want to, I don't want to paint the picture. I say this so much. 
I don't want to paint the picture that every university professor is like this, because they're not. I'm not stereotyping university professors, but there's a certain pedigree of university professor out there that likes to go completely out of his or her way in order to debunk faith. I mean, the curriculum they teach might have nothing to do with the Scriptures, but they swerve clear off the road in order to debunk. And, and, and they like these kinds of passages because they know they're obscure and they know that people don't know their Bibles and they can just have a field day and they can shake faith to the core. Well, listen, Zebulun, uh, what's up with this? You know, the skeptic says, you guys believe your Bibles, there's Zebulun's promised oceanfront property and Zebulun doesn't get oceanfront property. You see, you can't trust your Bible, and they hear that, and they've never had it explained, and they're thinking, well, maybe I can't trust. If there's an error there, maybe there's errors everywhere, and their faith is rocked. It happens every day, folks. And parents, we need to be aware of this stuff, too. We all need to be aware of it because we all care about it. Believe it or not, this stuff doesn't just happen to college students. It happens to adults, too. It happens to all of us. We have to roll our sleeves up, and we have to study this stuff. What, is, there, is, there, is there an explanation for this? Of course there is. Of course there is. Let's first start by asking ourselves, what kind of genre of literature are we reading? That is so important. If we're going to interpret, we, we make these decisions all the time when we read things. Like if I say to you, listen, the, 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 the mountains and the hills shall sing for joy, and the trees shall clap their hands. What am I saying to you? Am I saying that I believe that the mountains have vocal cords and the hills have a mouth and lips and that the trees have these hands that they can clap? You understand immediately. You immediately make a decision to understand that I'm speaking in poetry, that I'm speaking figuratively, that I'm not speaking literally. And it is a beautiful expression. I've stolen it from Isaiah. It's not mine, it's Isaiah's, Isaiah 55, I think it's verse 12. But it's a beautiful, I mean, doesn't it fill your heart with joy when you hear those words? I, 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 I don't know if you're allowed to have a favorite prophet, but I have a favorite prophet, he's Isaiah. He is so full of those kinds of things, you can get lost in those kinds of words, you can get lost in those phrases. It, it's, it's joy, isn't it? I mean, you think of joy, what is going on? Creation is full of joy and praising God. The trees are clapping their hands. The mountains and hills are singing praise. It's joyous. It's poetry. It's not to be taken literally. Now, obviously, we've come to poetry. And as it turns out, Zebulun, by virtue of where they are located, they're located in a place where a lot of sea trade goes right through Zebulun. Items that are produced in the Near East go through Zebulun on their way to the coast, to Aka, or even on up to Sidon. Because if you look at your map, you're going to see that Zebulun does not border on the city of Sidon. Sidon's a good ways north. And in fact, if you have one of those maps in the back of your Bible, probably the most northern dot you have is probably going to be Sidon on that map. It's a good ways off from Zebulun. But there is a major trade artery that comes down out of Sidon in the ancient land because Sidon was a major Phoenician sea trade port. And all of those goods and all of that traffic made its way right down through Zebulun. So much so, so much so that Zebulun basically is living off of 
this sea trade. So in a poetic sense, Zebulun can be a haven for ships. If ships have nothing, if they actually have nothing to load, if they have no cargo, they have no business. If they have no business, they don't sail. So the ships that are sailing on the seas need these places in order to keep that whole train running. And about Sidon, Sidon is nowhere near Zebulun. But that shouldn't alarm us anyway, because, you know, if you get on 11 and you travel north, when you, if you get on 11 and you're, if you're going to go to Cleveland, as soon as you get off of, like the exit, what's it say up there? If memory serves me correctly, when you go to get on 80, it says Cleveland, right? Cleveland one direction. And I think it says New York the other direction, doesn't it? Now, are there no other towns? I mean, is Austin Town near New York City? Is it near New York? Is it near Cleveland for that matter? No, it's a good way off. But for people who are traveling, especially people who are traveling and using that artery, a lot of people travel to Cleveland. A lot of people travel to New York and they need that sign because that's, that's a junction where they need to either turn left or they need to turn right. There's many towns in between, you see. So we see this all the time. And in one sense, we could speak poetically. Yeah, if you're going to go to, listen, if you're here and you want to go to New York, well, you're going to need to go up to, you're going to need to go up to Austin town and, and then that's where you make the turn, you know? I don't know if this makes any sense to you, but it's poetry. And is there an application here? No, it, it, there's, a, there's a wonderful application here. And this is what, this isn't the only thing that made me think of Psalm 16. If you're thinking, how does Psalm 16 fit into this? Because it seems like we've been kind of focusing on Psalm 16. That's because we are focusing on Psalm 16. But as soon as I started studying Genesis 49, I was thinking of Psalm 16 right from the get-go because of the line in verse 6 where the psalmist says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Now, what is the psalmist talking about? The psalmist is talking about the inheritance. Where's the inheritance come from? comes from Almighty God. That's what the psalmist is talking about. And the psalmist is talking about, oh, how I have been blessed. Zebulun, where Zebulun is, is concerned, the lines for them have fallen in pleasant places. There's, there's cause for great joy here by virtue of where God has providentially placed them. Does that make sense? Now, the application of that, I can make an application to an unbeliever, I can make an application to a believer quite simply, quite easily. The application, the application to the unbeliever is this. For most of us in America, boy, we have been born in a really, in a, we have really been blessed as to where, we could have been born in a lot of places around this world. There, Oh my goodness, and we take it so for granted, do we not? I mean, we, we have a tendency to point out what's wrong. This is not a perfect place by any description. It's not a perfect place. But how blessed it is to live in the United States. And there are so many people that want to live here. They want to live here. And many, many of them can't live here. But they would love to live here. Why? Well, the lines have fallen for us in, in wonderful places. Now, I say that for most Americans. I don't, want to, I don't want to paint a broad brush. I mean, some people... Some people have had terrible rides. If you, you know, if you were born into a crack house or a meth lab or something, that's a different story. What I'm talking about is for the most part, most Americans, it is such a blessing to live here. 
But if we want to take this into, if I want to make application to the believer, you already know where I'm going with this. How blessed it is to be in Christ. Now, that phrase in Christ comes right from the New Testament. You'll find that phrase, it's, it, ha, it occurs with a lot, of, a lot of frequency in the New Testament. And Christo, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? What it means to be in Christ is to be taken out of our union in Adam, taken out of that union in which we were born in. We were born in Adam to be taken out of Adam and placed in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we are put in Christ by faith. Faith is what unites us to Jesus. And if you are in Christ this morning, the lines have fallen for you in pleasant places. Oh my goodness, have they fallen for us in place. We are so ignorant of the blessing we have received. And I realize that the word ignorant is a strong word, and I'm using it intentionally. I need a strong word to describe because we can't see. We just can't see. Every day we can see a little better, but right now we still can't see. But when we see Jesus and we see his beauty and we see his splendor and we see the glory of heaven and we see those mighty angels praising him and we see the saints who've gone before us praising him and we see people who are a whole lot holier than us praising him, oh, how wonderful how wonderful it will be, how breathtaking it will be. And we will say with the psalmist, the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. If you're in Christ this morning, and I'll make another application too. Does Zebulun have anything to do with where he's being placed? Zebulun's like gathered around Jacob's bed. And God is saying, um, Zebulun... Saying through Jacob, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sinai. Does Zebulun have anything to do with that? Nor, do we, nor did we have anything to do with being engrafted in Christ. You want to talk about a joy killer. Start thinking that you're in Christ simply because you made a decision to be in Christ. Did you make a decision to be in Christ? Of course you did. Did I make a decision to be in Christ? Of course I did. But what is behind that decision? What was behind that decision was the Holy Spirit extracting me and you from Adam and putting us in Christ, giving us a new heart. You see, we have to have a new heart. An unconverted sinner has a heart of stone. It's a rock. It's like a rock. It's like a bag of hammers. There's no life in it. The Lord has to cause that heart to live and open the eyes and open the ears so that we can see the beauty of Christ. And then, and only then, do we embrace him with faith and repentance. Now see, do we make a decision to do that? Yes. And I'm all the time telling people, listen, you need, you, you need, to, you need to take Christ. And I'm calling people and trying to call people to make a decision for Christ. I want you to make a decision for Christ. But listen, if you've made a decision for Christ, don't glory in yourself. Because you only did that because he has blessed you. And if you're in Christ, the lines have fallen for you in pleasant places. How about Issachar? Verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey. 
Whew. You know, if someone called you that after the service, would you receive that as a compliment? That sounds like a euphemism for something that's very unkind, doesn't it? Well, it's important that we do not read our culture into this culture. That's called eisegesis. Isa meaning into, reading our stuff into the passage. We want to do exegesis, which means ex out of. We want to draw what we want to draw out of. Donkeys in this culture were like trucks. You know, you didn't you didn't go down to the Ford dealer or the Chevy dealer or Toyota dealer and order a truck in this. They didn't have trucks. No, you you bought a donkey. If you wanted to haul stuff that was heavy, you you put it on a donkey. A donkey was like a truck. And again, this is poetry. Are we to understand that the fifth son of Leah is actually a donkey? No, we understand that we're interpreting poetry here, right? So the donkey metaphor, what is it doing? Well, it's communicating some attribute to Issachar. What attribute would that be? What's the attribute of strength? I think if we were to put this in, in, in I think if we were to put some, if we were to say this in, in uh, contemporary English, we'd say, well, Issachar's like a tank. I mean, he just plows through whatever's in front of him. You know, or Issachar's like a uke. Or Issachar is like, you know, you know he, he's like this big, he's like a semi. I think that's how we would communicate that. That's what's going on. What's, what's being appealed to is Issachar's strength. In verse 15, and the second line in verse 14 is really difficult. It, crouching between the sheepfolds, what are we to make of that? I, I really don't know. I don't know. Problem is sheepfolds, like some of you might not have sheepfolds. Some of you, if you have an NIV open, you probably have saddlebags in memory, certain saddlebags. King James burden. You can see a link between burden and saddlebags. A saddlebag is something you put on a donkey and you load it up so it's a burden. King James has burden. Um, many other English translations have, have um, uh, sheepfolds. And that's because if you look the word up uh, in question here in a lexicon, you'll find a range of meaning like you do with other words. But one is a sheepfold, one is a burden, another one is saddlebag. But what you'll discover when you look in there, you'll discover this phrase, meaning uncertain. In other words, we're not certain exactly what that word means. If I have certainty about what the Scriptures say, then I can preach with certainty about what they say. And when I have uncertainty about what the Scriptures say, I can't preach with any level of certainty. So, I mean, I could give you a lot of conjecture, a lot of what people say. I don't think it's worthy of our time. I think we should just move on because I don't think we know. There's too much other stuff that we do know that we need to get to. And uh, I'm speaking out of this notion. Uh, a preacher told me years and years ago to keep the plain things the main things. And we're going to be busy here sticking with the plain things. Verse 15, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and he became a servant and forced labor. Now, mind you, Issachar is very strong. Issachar's descendants are going to be known as there's going to be this strength is being uh, communicated here. He saw that a resting place was good, that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear. He became a servant at forced labor. This passage can be taken um, positively, and it can be taken 
um, it can be taken negatively. Uh, I I want to end with um, positive. I I, I don't want to end on a negative. So let's do the negative stuff first. Um, negatively speaking, it's often interpreted this way. Okay, Issachar is very strong, but his heart is really set at ease. And his heart is set so much at ease that he ends up becoming enslaved. Proverbs speak about that. I mean, that's a biblical thing. When the Proverbs speak about the sluggard, okay, the sluggard won't lift a finger. And what happens to his fields? Well, they become overgrown. And when the fall time comes, his neighboring farmers who've worked all, all, all summer and worked hard, they have a harvest to gather in while the sluggard has nothing. He has nothing but a mess, right? So the sluggard loves ease. And because he loves ease, he becomes enslaved to all kinds of things. That's really kind of the, the gist of it. And um, an application of that, as I was thinking of a, an application of that, you know, we might call that ambitionless contentment, perhaps, if we want to put it in kind of a, you know, succinct little phrase, ambitionless contentment. I, I think there's an application to that for, for many who are in the church because there's a tendency for many to become, to, to, uh, and I'm speaking of people who are truly in Christ. They receive Christ. And they're cognizant that they've received Christ. They have assurance of salvation, and they are truly trusting in Jesus. They're trusting in Jesus for their salvation. And this is a wonderful thing. But in terms of advancing their faith and advancing their walk in Christ, they're very lazy about making use of the means of grace. So uh, and, and we could say a lot about that, but let me just, let me just divide it into three categories. We could talk about Bible reading, we could talk about prayer, and we could talk about service. There's three broad categories that we could talk about. So this person recognizes they have faith, they've repented of their sins, they repent of their sins when they commit them, but, they're, but, but they don't have a lot of ambition in terms of learning the Scriptures, for example. Uh, you know, they, 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 can, they can close the book on Sunday morning and it can sit in the car or it can sit on the table uh, till Wednesday, uh, when Bible study comes, or maybe till next Sunday, till next Sunday comes, or maybe three Sundays from now. Um, that's what's in view here. Now, that's a joy killer. Why is that a joy killer? I think uh, those of us who have walked with the Lord for any length of time, when you first started walking with the Lord, how well did you know the Bible? You don't hardly know it at all, do you? And yet, you're still bombarded with all these life decisions, and you make these life decisions. And, and, you know, later you learn more about the Bible, and you learn that an important decision you made five years or ten years or twenty years ago was unbiblical. And therefore, if you'd have known your Bible a little better, you wouldn't have made that unbiblical decision, and all of the grief and all of the pain that come from that unbiblical decision would not have been an experience you would have had to have endured. So you can see there's just one example how, you know, not progressing in, in, in Scripture and reading Scripture and reading Scripture, how that can, that can be a joy killer. 
And the fact is, the more we know about our Bible, the better we know our Bible, guess what? The increase there is in joy in reading the Bible. It's never fun to read a book that you have to look up every other word in. Have anyone ever had read, read a book where you just need a dictionary right next to you, you know, because you don't, you can't understand the whole, you know, that, that's a tedious, that's, that's not a fun prospect at all. But the more you get to know about the, the Bible, the less you have to do that. You know, you hear the word Sidon. You know, what's Sidon? Well, I know what's Sidon. I remember Sidon's that town. It's a great seaport up in Phoenicia. You know, it takes time to learn all that stuff. So you don't have to look that stuff up. But the more you learn that stuff, the better you're going to see the poetry in the Bible, the better you're going to see the beauty of the Bible, the more joy you're going to get out of the Bible, and the greater the appetite to return to the Bible, you see. And, and really, those of you who have been blessed in the mornings as you've opened up the Word of God, those are truly one of the greatest times of joy there is, isn't there? What is true joy? True joy is an emotion that takes place in response to a blessing that God has given us. We, we can have just worldly joy. Worldly joy would be happiness in response to uh, some joy that's not wholesome. Or happiness in response to something that's taking place that's not wholesome. A bank robber could have joy in getting away with robbing a bank. That's not what I'm talking about. True joy is happiness in response to a blessing that God has given us. And, and, and you know something? This is a way that we can taste and see that God is good, actually. Because God gives true joy both to the unbelieving and the believing. God gives good things to the unbelieving as well as the believing. You know, one of the songs that I really miss singing that we never sing is the doxology. Some of us will know the doxology. There's such an important message in the doxology that we need to hear. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. I mean, what is, that, what is that expressing? It's expressing that every single blessing that we've ever received that is good in our life has its source in Almighty God. And in that sense, we can say the joy that we experienced in response to that blessing was joy that was given to us by the Lord. Unbelievers get to experience that and get to taste and see it's good. And this, this, by the way, arm yourself with this when you're speaking with unbelievers. You say, you guys want to know what God is about? If you've experienced true joy before, I know you have. If they have children, look at the children. Look at the joy you had when your child came into the world. Where did you get that child from? The best joy that you ever experience in this life and that I will ever experience in this life is the joy that God gives us. It's the real meaningful stuff. Now, if we're a believer, well, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know, etc. Joy is one of the products of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. Now, here we are with reading Scripture. You know, if we give ourselves to reading Scripture and studying Scripture, we're going to make less poor decisions. We're going we're gonna to uncover ungodly living, and we're going to... Be empowered to do about it. An infantile knowledge of God. I might add that too. Infantile knowledge of God. That is such a problem in the church. 
You know, you bump into somebody who, who maybe came to Christ about the same time you did, and they're not applying themselves to the Word, or they're sitting somewhere where the Word isn't taught, and you bump into them, you know? And like once upon a time, you could have these deep conversations with them because you guys were both just expressing these superficial cliches with one another, and that was enough for you at that time because it was great, you know? It's great. But then you meet them. You haven't seen them for 10 years, and you meet them, and they're still expressing those empty cliches, and you're thinking to yourself, what happened? Well, they're not growing. They're not growing. That's what happened. We have to be students of the Word. Wednesday night um, at Bible study here, I think everyone who come out Wednesday night would agree that wasn't an easy study, I don't think. But those studies are necessary because sometimes we've got to roll our sleeves up. We've got to plow through. I could say so much more about this. Let me move on because we've got a couple more to do here. Um, second would be lack of prayer. As we think about resting in ease and not using the, the means of grace, so much could be said about prayer that I'm just going to say one thing. When we go through seasons where we're not praying much, we go through seasons where we're being beat up by our vices, don't we? Guarantee. You will not be killing sin in your life if you're not praying in your life. You know, if there's not a lot of prayer, there's not going to be a lot of killing sin. So... Sin promises joy, doesn't it? But it's a lie. Sin kills joy. Not 50% of the time, not 75% of the time, not 99% of the time, 100% of the time. You know, teenagers, you know, they ask... One to two teenagers ask their friends, come on, let's go out. We're going to go out and we're going to get, we're going to get tanked. And the one teenager who's a Christian says, no, I'm not going to do that. And the other one's looking at him and say, well, you're a killjoy. Really? Okay, the next morning, when they're like hovering over the toilet, who's the killjoy? I know I'm using a graphic illustration here, but it's one you're not going to forget. Who is the killjoy? Sin promises all this fun, doesn't it? But it doesn't deliver. Sin doesn't kill joy 50% of the time, not 75, not even 99, 100% of the time. It kills joy. Lastly, an unwillingness to serve. We have, we have resting in ease and having no ambition to, to um, use the means of grace. Service is a means of grace, by the way. When I was just beginning to study at Geneva College, I was assigned a reading by a man named Edmund Clowney. Some of you may know who Edmund Clowney is. Maybe not a lot of us. But he was a seminary professor from a previous generation. And he wrote, one of the things that he wrote, I've never been able to forget it. He said, the call to Christ is the call to service. The call to Christ is the call to serve. At that time, Tammy and I were leading a very difficult youth ministry over in East End. And, you know, we couldn't even hardly get kids to tell us what their name was. I mean, them kids were so untrusting, them poor kids. They were so untrusting that they would, they would tell us, they would come in and we'd say, what's your name? Oh, my name's Sarah. Okay. All week long, Tammy and I'd be busy trying to memorize all these names. They weren't even their real names. One thing you don't do with kids, I mean, if you... Try not to forget their names. It's really hard. 
If, if we repeatedly forget their names, they're going to think we don't care about them. I know I for, my memory is only so... I forget. We all forget. But try not, we try not to forget their names. And well, the next week they come in, oh, hi, Sarah. And they'd be like, they would, they, would, they would be upset with us. They'd be like, my name's not Sarah. I'd be like, oh, man, I thought she said her name was Sarah. Like, you want to talk about a, a, a head trip. And we're in the middle of this, and that's just one thing that's going on. And I read this, the call to Christ is the call to service. And that was like, that was such music to my ears. I'm like, okay, we can plow through because the call of Christ is a call to service. And the thing is, Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And his disciples, I mean, our, our master didn't come to be served. Do we think that we should be served? I mean, that is so unchristlike. To think that really, and, and, and what's that say to the person that, you know, that pushes the shopping cart into the church and basically just comes in and just sits and just gathers and then leaves or travels from church to church to see which church is the best one. That is so unlike Christ. The call to Christ is the call to serve. And here's the thing. What is the relationship between that and joy? The relationship between that and joy is there is a tremendous amount of blessings that you cannot receive unless you get involved in serving. You just can't receive these blessings. And if you don't receive these blessings, you won't receive the joy. Because remember, joy is a response to a blessing that God has given. Let me, while I'm on the subject of the youth group, I'll tell you, that was a difficult ministry Tammy and I were involved in. And I don't say this to complain. I don't say it to complain. But I'm going to tell you what, it was a very rewarding ministry because I forget how long we were in that ministry, but we, we got the opportunity to take those kids to Six Flags. And everybody was like, you guys are going to take those kids up to Six Flags. And we're like, yeah, we're going to take them to Six Flags. They're like, how in the world, how are you going to manage those kids in Six Flags? I don't know, but we're going to take them. Them kids were angels at Six Flags. They were so well-behaved. They were so excited to get in the vans. We rented these vans. We put them in the vans. We drove up to Six Flags. And they were so excited to be at Six Flags that they just, they, you couldn't shake them. They were like, you know, like people envisioned them just being like wild people. And they wanted their pictures taken with us. We want to get a picture. Take a picture. Take a picture with us. I can't tell you how many blessings we received taking those kids to Six Flags. Now, would we have received any of those blessings if we wouldn't have been involved with those kids' lives? The answer is no. And if we wouldn't have received the blessings, we would have never experienced the joy. A joy killer is an unwillingness to serve. That's a joy killer. Now, you see why I don't want to end here. I'd hated to close in prayer right now. There is a positive interpretation of our text that I would like to conclude with. If you look at verse 15 again, he saw that a resting place, that is Issachar, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant in forced labor. Okay, what is the positive? Well, this could be interpreted in a positive way. Matthew Henry is one example of an interpreter who interprets this in a positive way. Matthew Henry says this. He says, listen, Issachar sees how tremendously blessed he is by what he has received. 
that it makes his burdens light. What a biblical truth that is. You know, if we're getting convicted of being at ease and not using the means of grace, uh, guilt will move us. You know, the right kind of guilt. Some of you know, you've, we've had counseling, you've come to me, we've talked, and you've, you've talked, and you've said, well, the, this, this, this is going on, and I just feel so guilty. And sometimes you felt guilty because someone was manipulating you, and we worked through that. But sometimes you felt so guilty, and you heard me say it. Well, you, the reason you feel guilty is because you are guilty. But the good news in that is you can be cleansed. We can be forgiven. I've had to have people say that to me before, by the way. I don't want you to think that I'm up here looking down at anyone. I had a seminary professor. Man, I'll tell you what. He pointed one thing out in my life one time very early on. I'll not forget it. No, 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 no. I so looked up to him, and when he looked at me, and he, he pointed out some things that were going on in my life, and he used the word derelict. He said, you have some derelicts in your life, young man. You need to work on Oh, that was like, oh. There's an old blues song called, I'm Tore Down. I'm almost level with the ground. That's about where I was at. But again, as we think about joy, when you've been reduced by the Word of God that way, it's a painful thing. But grace is never happier when you receive it after you've been leveled to the ground. Oh, Lord, you could, you could take that away from me too. I mean, you can forgive me of that. Oh, no, I'm going to do more than forgive you of that, Rick. I'm going to take that away from you, and I'm going to transform you into being the exact opposite of that. And in a very short period of time, I'm going to bring you into glory, and that is never going to be remembered anymore. You will never be like that again. You won't even be capable of being like that again. That's the good news. Salvation. Do you see how joyous that is? And out of that joy... What does that do to our burdens to serve? You see, this is really what empowers us to serve. Jesus is saying it when he says, Come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he says, Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is what? It's light. What lightens that burden? The joy. Where does the joy come from? The blessing. Where does the blessing come from? You see the train? Why does our joy decay? Why when we experience our joys, it decay so fast? It's because we are, we are, we are infants at these things. We need, to put, we need to take these things and we need to work these things into our lives. We need to work these principles into our lives. And that is what we're doing as the church grows, by the way. The church grows simply by taking things like this, integrating them into our lives and practicing them. Think about it. How'd you grow? Did you just wake up one day and, you know, there you are? No. No, it, it happens as we, as we get up and we come on Sunday mornings or we listen to a tape or we come on Wednesday nights as we read our Bibles. Sometimes it doesn't seem like anything's going on. Sometimes we don't feel like doing it. By the way, don't think that Rick always feels like reading his Bible because he doesn't. I'm like, I'm like the rest of us. But we got to do it. We want to continue to do it. Because what happens? What happens is we grow. We receive blessings. 
And in response to those blessings, we experience joy. Amen. Heavenly Father, there's so much more that could be said, Father. Um, so much more that could be said. And, but Father, we, we, we must stop here and we must praise you. Oh, Father, we, we pray that you will cause us to think on these things and to ponder on these things and to meditate on these things. And may these things reverberate in our hearts, not just this afternoon, but forevermore. The Father, we, we desire to experience joy. We were, we were created to experience joy, and we want the joy that comes from you. And Father, we want to see our joy be a lasting joy. Father, we recognize our joy often decays, and it decays very rapidly. We, and we recognize that there are many things that we could do, O oh Father, to keep us from experiencing joy. O oh Lord, work in our hearts and our lives, O oh Father, that, Lord, we would find our walk with you to be much more joyous. Oh, Father, we thank you in these things. Amen.